Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to She Started It, the podcast that explores female entrepreneurship through the eyes of an inspiring guest every week. I'm your host, Angelica Malin, Editor-in-Chief of About Time magazine and founder of the She Starts It Live festivals. From fashion to fitness, law to entrepreneurship, this series of She Started It will explore what it takes to be a female trailblazer today. Get ready to be totally inspired. Today's podcast is brought to you in partnership with Tide. Tide is the business current account designed to support small business owners like you. With no daunting paperwork and no monthly fees, you could open an account in minutes. They couldn't make it simpler, trusted by over 100,000 businesses. Download the Tide app to get started today. Sasha Celestial One is co-founder and CEO of Olio, a free app which harnesses the power of mobile technology and the sharing economy to provide a revolutionary new solution to the problem of food waste. Olio does this by connecting neighbours with each other and with local businesses so that surplus food can be shared, not thrown away. Launched in the UK in January 2016, Olio has 1.1 million users, supported by 35,000 volunteers promoting Olio in their local communities. Collectively, Oleolas have successfully shared 1.7 million portions of food with each other. Prior to founding Olio, Sasha spent 10 years in finance, strategy and business development roles at Morgan Stanley, McKinsey and American Express, and also founded MyCresh, London's first pay-as-you-go provider, offering flexible childcare for busy parents. Sasha, thank you so much for joining me today. Can you tell me a little bit about your company, Olio, and what you guys do? Thank you for having me. Olio is a free mobile app that connects neighbors with each other and also volunteers with local businesses so that good edible food can be shared and not thrown away. Um, How did the idea come about? A few years ago, my co-founder and best friend Tessa was moving house. Um, She was living abroad and coming back to the UK. And on moving day, she had some gorgeous fresh produce that she wasn't going to be able to eat in time. I think it was some cabbages and sweet potatoes, something like that. And um, the removal men wouldn't let them put let her put them in the packing boxes. Um, and she didn't want to leave them in um, the flat to go to waste. So she went out on the street trying to find someone to give them to in the middle of winter with two small children, and she couldn't find anyone. And when she told me that story, when she came back, she ended up smuggling them into her packing boxes anyway. Um, when she told me that story, and we've been actively looking for an environmental challenge that we could tackle together by starting a business, we had that sort of aha moment um, because obviously there was someone near her on that day who would have been happy to have her food. It was just a communications issue and a mobile app could help them overcome that. Mm. I want to talk a bit about bringing that idea into reality, but I'd like to backtrack first a little bit to your earlier career. Where were you in your journey with your career when you wanted to start earlier? What what got you to that point? Well, um, so that would have been in early 2015. And I had just spent... um, I might have to backtrack just a little bit more than that. Um, I I spent 13 years in the corporate world. I had a very traditional career in uh, banking, management, consulting, and business development for American Express. And then in 2012, 13, I was on maternity leave, and that just fundamentally caused sort of a big 
um, reprioritization for me, um, and I decided to, to to not return to to my job at American Express and to follow an entrepreneurial um, path. Um, and I went about establishing a business called My Crash, which was London's first pay-as-you-go high street childcare provider, um, and that was really sort of. Uh, addressing a gap in the market that I really felt when I was on maternity leave as an expat, I needed just a couple hours to myself sometimes. And I, you know, you can't really book a babysitter in the middle of the day. I wasn't quite needing a nanny, um, nor could I afford one. Um, but there was nowhere to get sort of uh, ad hoc flexible childcare. Um, so I decided to go ahead and open that business. But the goal was to get it to be self-sustaining so I could benefit from its service and, and, and not be actively involved in the management. And it took about a year, a year and a half to get that up and running. Um, and um, once that was up and running and I realized that I probably didn't want to scale it and expand it, um, I I took two or three months off, three months, and I went back to America and I helped my dad who's um, – total eccentric with lots of big ideas, um, do run his, I ran his campaign for, um, he was running for senator, United States senator, senator on an independent um, um, plat- wow. platform. Um, he didn't have any chances of winning, but he certainly tried really hard. And it was a fantastic opportunity to work with my dad really intensely and get to know him in a way I'd never know, you know, gotten to know him throughout my childhood. But when that was finished, um, on the day after election day in 2014, um, I was sort of now what do I do with my life? Um, and I really felt that I wanted to continue to be my own boss and continue to start my own, um, you know, there's there's a level of passion and commitment that you put into things that are your own. At mm-hmm. least I found personally that no matter how much I enjoyed the work that I did previously, I never summoned that amount of passion. Mm-hmm. And to the idea of going back and working on um, you know, working for someone else, working on working on something I wasn't as passionate about just left me feeling empty, especially if I was going to be leaving my child at home. So long story short, Tessa was also at a crossroads at that time, and she had um, had entrepreneurial itchings for quite a few years. Um, and we had actually previously started something, um, a, a business together that we ended up putting to the side. And, and we decided that we were going to take a few months out and actively start looking for an environmental challenge that we could tackle at scale, leveraging technology. Um, and it was actually, it was a very thorough, we both come from consulting business school backgrounds, and so um, we did a, a probably way overcomplicated analysis of the entire global market for, for, for waste streams and things like that. And actually, we got to the end of that analysis and rather disheartened, we couldn't find anything to, to pursue. And then, literally in the 11th hour, Tessa told me that story, and the idea for Olio was born instantly. Within mm-hmm. the hour, we had named the app and set aside a plan um, and some, some of our life savings to take it forward. Where did the name come from? We Googled that same day, um, HodgePodge. So um, I don't know if it's in the UK, but in America, HodgePodge is, is a just yeah. random assortment. Mm-hmm. Um, and Olio means a random assortment. It also is a type of Mediterranean stew that you sort of throw a bit of everything in. We didn't quite realize it at the time, but it means olive oil in Italian. So we get tagged in a lot of recipes <laughs> in Italian on, on social sometimes. But And so you had this idea, and then how did you make it a reality? What are some of the practical steps you took? So that we incorporated the company in February 2015, and we gave um we're both the primary breadwinners in our family, and um, we're both um, in our early forties. And I guess that's just to add that we just didn't have time to mess around. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we said that we would, 
give ourselves one year to get to the point where neither of us needed to return to the traditional workforce to support our families. And um, we set a goal of going live um, in six months. And actually, we went live in the App Store five months to the day from when we incorporated. And between conception and going live in the App Store um, was... I mean, so much activity took place, and so much of it was about the principle of doing things that do not scale. So effectively, Olio is a marketplace. We we match people who have items, food, although we also allow non-food, but it's mostly food, um, that they don't want with people nearby who would like them um, or, or you like that food. And so um, you've got supply, you've got demand, and you need to have um, a sufficient density in terms of the number of people within a defined geographic area to make sure that you have the the clearing or um, in the matching. Um, obviously, if someone has some fruit and they're 10 miles away from me, that's not very helpful to me and vice versa. So we drew, um, we sort of ring-fenced an area in North London, um, which coincidentally is about a 30-minute walk anyway from which direction from my house. Um, and we put letters, at least 10,000 letters, through people's um, letterboxes. We flyered on the streets. We stood on the street corner with a clipboard and talked to people up about the idea and got people um, to give us their email address, such that um, on the day we launched, we had 2,200 email addresses, and people had said they'd be interested in learning about Olio. And during that time, we also um, ran a very small pilot. We, we did a market research survey um, and got several hundred people to um, tell us their views about whether or not we should launch Olio. We learned that 35% um, of people feel physically pained when they throw away food that was or e recently was edible. And we learned that more than 90% of people said they'd be willing to walk 10 minutes to pick up homegrown or fresh fruit and veg. Um, and through that process, we also identified some people who were just fanatical about wanting to bring Olio to life. Um, and we selected 14 of those people and we put them in a WhatsApp group, and we told them that the only rule was that if they had food they didn't want, they needed to put it in the group, and if they wanted it, they had to, you know, private message to request it. And during the 14 days, because a lot of people telling us that they wanted us to bring Olio to life, it's a lot different than people actually using it, using it and taking the time and energy to, to facilitate the share. Um, but we had 26 successful shares between 14 strangers in 14 days. And when we debrief people, um, afterwards, they said that it really didn't need to be that much better than a WhatsApp group. So that actually really helped us to strip back a lot of the features that were sort of we thought that were, were really important in the beginning, but we didn't end up launching till much later, like user ratings, for example. Um, and we launched with a really simple, basic version of the app mm. um, in the summer of 2015. So do you think uh, if you were giving advice to people who are thinking of starting an app, do you think stripping back is a good way to go and making it a lot simpler? Yes. Well, first, I would say do really question whether you need an app at all. You can get most of the way with a mobily responsive website these days, and apps are significantly more expensive to develop and maintain. Mm -hmm. And then, two, if you're determined that you need an app, yes, absolutely. Um, strip back, iterate quickly. Um, we're sort of really evangelical about the sort of whole lean, lean startup principle, but don't presume you know what your customers want. Mm -hmm. um, you can really only sort of test, you know, learn through observation and then quick iteration. So start with something really small and then um, in terms of a, a minimum viable feature set and then expand slowly based on or expand quickly based on um, real feedback that you're getting as opposed to 
feedback that you're imagining. Yeah, actually listening to the community. Mm. And how did you work out the business model um, for Olio? That's um, an excellent question. It's something that we're still working on. Um, So right now, I mean, ultimately, we're a network business. And when we're at massive scale, um, you know, we've got about 1.3 million signed up users right now, but our ambition is to get to a billion users in 10 years. And somewhere between 1 million and a billion, um, you're at a scale that you are able to sort of, you have a, a large and engaged active network, and there are lots of ways that you can go about monetizing that. Um, but in the meantime, the way that we've been monetizing is through our Food Waste Hero- Heroes program. We have just over 4,000 food safety trained volunteers who we match with businesses such as Pret-a-Manger and Selfridges and Planet Organic and lots of businesses that you may have heard of who care about um, and are committed to sustainable operations. And we match those volunteers with the businesses to collect the unsold food that can't be distributed to charity, of which there's a lot, um, and to take that food home and distribute it to their neighbors through the app. So it brings food into the Olio ecosystem. It's still a neighbor-to-neighbor experience because it's volunteers connecting with their neighbors. Um, But we're providing a very valuable service to those businesses for which they pay us. Do you think there's always going to have to be a level of flexibility to your business model because of the nature of the business that's going to have to change and you're going to have to adapt with that? I think so. Um, Tess and I spend a lot of time trying to learn from other entrepreneurs who sort of trod in this path ahead of us. And everyone we talk to says that the business model is a constant source of evolution. Um, And um, even now, if I look back, we've gone through three rounds of fundraising. And I look, if I'm honest, if I look back at the, our, um, you know, we thought in the beginning that we would, our business model was going to be a percentage commission on sales. So we very quickly um, took away the ability for anyone to sell anything, and everything on the app is free. Um, And um, so that's just, you know, it's almost quaint that we thought that that was what our business model was going to be in the beginning. Um, But we really, truly did believe that. And obviously, it's an evolution as the... Um, as you learn. You've raised 6.25 million to date. We have, yes. Can you talk to me about that fundraising process? What was it like? um, Fundraising is mildly hellish, if I'm honest. Um, It's all consuming. It really is. Um, I'm grateful I am the sort of COO to Tessa's CEO, and she does um, bear the brunt of a lot of the fundraising in terms of making those initial, um, uh, building those initial relationships. And then I sort of come in once we're a little bit further down the stage and we need to do um, pitching to investment com- committees and things like that. But it's, 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 it, you have a, we have a lot of responsibility. We have 25 full-time team members and they have families. And on the one hand, you're very conscious that you have a lot of responsibility and you have a certain number of months runway in the bank and if you do the math it's going to run out at some point and and that's really scary on the other hand i have i think tess and i both have this just such such deep faith and confidence in the value of olio and the potential of olio that it's never once really crossed our minds that we wouldn't be able to raise the money we need to grow and to bring olio to its to its full potential do you feel the pressure of having the investors? Like, has it changed the nature of the business for you? You know what? I think we have had extraordinarily excellent investors. We have actively tried to seek investors with patient capital and who understand and believe in our social mission. And of course, we believe that we can be highly scalable and profitable in good time, but that we're trying to change mainstream consumer behavior change, and it might not be as quick of a transition to that 
scalable profitability as some other businesses. That said, we have raised the bulk of our funds from traditional, you know, our first, um, our seed and second round investor is Excel, who's a traditional Silicon Valley investor. Um, and I mean, I think we're just a bit handled a bit atypically. I think some of that is because the size of the problem that we're addressing so is just massively exciting. So $1.2 trillion, plus Tess and I have quite a bit of experience. We have more than 30 years of experience between us in sort of senior roles in finance, et cetera. So I think we're a slightly safer pair of hands and the size of the problem. So there's $1.2 trillion of food that goes to waste every year in the UK by weight. I think it's 71% of food um, that's wasted is in our homes and 70% of that is edible and could have been eaten. So it's just a massive opportunity Mm -hmm. and those organizations that figure out how to unlock that value um, are poised to not only have incredible social and environmental impact, but deliver commercial returns to their investors. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's podcast is brought to you in partnership with Tide, the UK's fastest growing business current account provider. Feel confident in your first steps as a founder with smart financial tools and 24-7 in-app support. With easy invoicing and accounting integrations, Tides is an alternative to traditional banks for small businesses like yours. Spend less time on admin and more time on growing your business. Tide are also committed to helping women in business and are offering our listeners £50 when you open a Tide account and deposit £50. Just visit www.tide.co forward slash she started it to get started. If you're feeling inspired by this week's episode and are thinking of starting your own business, why not come along to the next She Started It Live in London? Taking place on the 13th and 14th of March 2020 at Crypt on the Green in Farringdon, this two-day flagship festival will give you all the advice and inspiration you need to supercharge your career with over 75 incredible speakers. Book on Eventbrite now by searching for She Started It Live and use the code SHESTARTEDIT10 for 10% off. How damaging do you think that amount of waste is for society and for the planet? It's completely underestimated how bad food waste is for the environment. Um, The year before last, I don't know if you've heard of Project Drawdown, but a group of 100 of the world's leading climate scientists came together to stack rank all of the different solutions to food, um, to, to, to climate change or the climate crisis. And food waste came in at number three above electric cars, above solar panels. Um, If it were a country, food waste would be the third largest contributor to climate change after only the USA and China. Um, And the reality is that, you know, um, it's just a, it's a huge waste of resources. Not only does the food go to waste where it decomposes without access to oxygen and converts into methane, which is a greenhouse gas that's extraordinarily potent, Um, But all of the resources that went into growing that food go to waste as well. So 25% of the world's fresh water supply goes to waste. 
um, on food that's never even eaten. Meanwhile, we are experiencing droughts in many parts of the world, and water is poised to become actually a scarce commodity. And so it's just it's one of the it's it's one of the last massive market inefficiencies that's out there that hasn't been um, that hasn't been addressed. But if you're paying attention to the space, you there's been a huge influx of capital all along the supply chain. Um, to businesses that are trying to address it. But we are really the only one right now that are addressing consumer, domestic, household food waste, which oddly, which is a bit odd. Well, I think it's the biggest problem to solve and it's the, and the hardest, but it is also the biggest, the biggest source of food waste. I, presumably, I suppose what's difficult for what you do is that although I think there has been so much more focus and attention on on climate change and we're so much more aware now about sustainability, that behavioural shift is still taking some time to happen. Mm. Um, what are you trying to achieve in terms of behavioural changes with the app and what are some of the challenges that have come with that? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I wish there was a magic formula for behaviour change. Um, that would be worth a lot more. than. I know that mainstream consumer behaviour change is hard. Um, and there's not a magic formula, but I also know that it's possible. And if you look at the way we think about smoking indoors or even recycling or littering or, you know, there's just or dating online, you know, online dating, things that no one would have done 20, 30, 40 years ago are now completely commonplace. And I truly believe that throwing away edible food will be as taboo as throwing your trash on the ground um, in hopefully less than 10 years, but um, in the near future. Um, and so I think when you want to try and institute change, you need to, when I was at McKinsey, we had a model um, for organizational behavior change called the influence model. Um, I can't remember it precisely, but you need a whole lot of different things to facilitate behavior change. You need people that are respected um, to be role modeling the behavior that you want others to adopt. So that's getting celebrities involved. That's getting influencers involved. That's really having people role modeling this behavior. Um, you need the sort of systems and infrastructure to facilitate change. Um, you know, in a lot, most of um, of the UK, you can't even, there's not even food waste recycling, mm-hmm. right, for example. Um, so... There's a whole set of tactics that need to be put in place um, all at once to facilitate the transition to a more sustainable sort of lifestyle for most, for the average person. Um, I think rather than, our view is that rather than sort of waiting around for government to, to regulate things, let's make it really easy and really fun right now um, to, to, to solve the problem of domestic food waste by sharing it. Because when you share some food on Oleo, um, in um, 50% of all listings are requested and collected in under an hour. And three out of four listings are collected. And um, if you're in London, that's a UK-wide figure. If you're in London, it's a lot faster. Mm-hmm. So our biggest, what, we, what we've discovered is someone lists food for the first time, which is a bit weird, right? You're like, okay, who's going to want my head of broccoli? I'm not sure about this. But once you do it for the first time and you have that positive experience, you're hooked. You'll stick it. We'll have really good retention. People do it over and over. It just feels amazing to give food to another person who's going to appreciate it. Like that, that satisfies a lot of our evolutionary sort of instincts mm-hmm. for, for, for helping another human and also for stopping food from going to waste. So we just try really, really, really hard, um, and we haven't cracked it yet, but to get every person who downloads the app to take that plunge and that leap of faith and to add a listing for the first time. Mm-hmm. Last week, we ran a campaign where if you add a listing, 
um, sort of within the first week of joining, we planted a tree on um, on behalf of a friend that you could nominate. Oddly, this worked really, really, really well. People much better than when we gave a tree. We planted a tree on your behalf, but if you could give a tree to someone else, that seemed to encourage people to list. Mm-hmm. It's just needing that first bit of encouragement, and then once they've done it, I suppose it's that. Yeah, it's that change. It's the first time you take your keep cup. Yes, you feel a bit weird and walking yeah. through the streets, and then actually you realise that it feels great, and yeah. it's just that that slow trickling change. Yeah, you said about the importance of having celebrities and influencers mm. um, kind of being seen to championing the cause. I wanted to ask you because I feel sometimes like a bit of a disconnect with this because when they are championing and mm. very often they're the first to get criticised mm. so if we look in the press and we look at Meghan Markle taking a private jet mm. um, or uh, lots of incidents where celebrities are criticised wh- why do you think that happens and mm. what do we need to change as a culture for that not to happen the whole time yeah I mean Meghan Markle chose Tessa my co-founder um, and Olio to be one of the voices of change for the Vogue episode for the Vogue issue that just came out and actually there was a lot of criticism that came out about us and about Meghan um, I I don't quite know the 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 answer to that question, but I do think that it feels anecdotally to me that there's been a shift in that it's become normalized to have just negative or scandalous stories become more and more I think more and more prevalent in the main in the mainstream media, um, and that there's not as many not as much champion of po- championship of positive stories and positive things that people are doing so it's a bit of um of, of of game theory really like someone needs to just develop some integrity and start you know taking a stand against against what they will or you know against fake news against um um negative you know sort of scandalous news stories. Do you think that part of the problem is because we're still a little bit unwilling to take responsibility when it comes to climate change and that we feel perhaps when we see people who are doing good Mm. that we feel it reflected upon ourselves and then we feel kind of guilty? I think that it's that's definitely part of it. Um, I think people, the average person, including myself, very often feel powerless in the face of something that's really rather scary and described as you know, apoplectic to us that's going to be happening in our future and that puts at risk the future of our children and grandchildren. Um, yet at the same time, um, you know, we need to pay our bills and do the laundry and sort of, you know, li- live an everyday normal life. And it's not quite clear what actions I can take if they're going to make any difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a great quote that says, we don't need a few people doing things perfectly. We need everyone to be doing things just a bit better, even if it's imperfect. And, um, and I think it's really important to, um, to to not beat yourself up about not being having a perfect sort of sustainable, you know, we don't all need to all the time, you know, um, you know take our glass jars to the store to buy food in bulk. Like if that's not going to work for some people, that's, I mean, I don't do that. That just doesn't work for me. I don't have a car. I bicycle everywhere. But on the other hand, I bicycle everywhere and I don't have a car. So we can, I think we, I think the important thing is to feel like if we all just make a few changes Mm -hmm. collectively, it will, I believe, result in transformational Mm -hmm. change that can, can make a real difference. Just a few small steps, yeah. basically, and uh, not trying to do everything perfectly. Um, can you just talk to me quickly about your upbringing personally and how that kind of affected the business that you're running today? So you grew up in rural Iowa, and uh, can you tell me a bit about that? I yes, I was the oldest of six kids, um, and I grew up 
and I identified as being poor when I was a kid, um, and I was. Um, but my parents were super entrepreneurial. Uh, they founded a, um, a cooperative that sells um, herbs and spices and natural food products, um, and which ultimately became rather successful. Um, but when in, in my formative years, my mom had to work really hard with so many children and with um, um, sort of a struggling business to make ends meet. And she got really creative. We spent a lot of time going around town. I was just home a few weeks ago reminiscing with her. Um, but we would go around to basically the various dumpsters in town, whether it's the dumpsters behind the supermarket or the dumpsters behind the plant nursery. I specifically remember often climbing in the plant nursery dumpsters and pulling out um, broken and damaged plants, and we would repot those, and then we would sell them on and sort of nurse them back to health. I guess I share these stories because it's – it's really sort of ingrained in me the idea of giving things a value a second chance. I hate to see to see things thrown away when there's still any value left in them. I'm definitely the kind of person who picks up sort of like a random pair of jeans that have been discarded on the street and takes them home and, and washes them and either finds someone to give them to or I put them on Oleo or take them to a charity shop. And um, I just do have this sort of inbuilt um, distaste for like excessive disposable or, or ex- excessive consumption. Mm. You describe your parents as hippie entrepreneurs. Do mm. you think that more business owners could learn from that example? I think the best thing about being a, being a business owner is that you get to make your own rules. Like you really get to make your own rules um, with regard to what kind of culture you want to have for your organization, what kind of, you know, working um, hours, you know, everything is really more or less up for debate, especially today where so many people can do remote working. Um, and my parents definitely, um, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, made things up and did things the way they wanted to do them that reflected their values. And um, and I think that, yes, more, more business owners can learn from that. And I think it's good to break the mold, and that's what makes it incredibly satisfying. You have to take a lot of risk and put in a lot of hard work, but on the flip side, you get to you get to set things up the way you want to. Have you brought in those cultural changes in at Olio? We have. So Tess and I are both have small children at home, and we um, have very purposely built a culture of flexibility such that, you know, selfishly enables us to be rather hands-on, for example, at school drop-off or school pickup or sports day, um, um, those sort of key moments in our children's life, and and we we've hired people who value that flexibility as well. Maybe they have um, a dog that they want to walk every day, or um, you know some other personal passion that they need to be able to incorporate into their working day. So we work really hard, um, mm-hmm. and it's a bit of a twenty four seven. It's almost more like being a student necessarily than uh, you know you can always study a bit more. Um, but we've ingrained that flexibility into our culture, which we really value. How did you decide to split the CEO and COO roles between you and Tessa? Even though um, Tess and I, on paper, have a lot um, in common, and we can sort of swap in and out for each other, you know, in media interviews and such. Um, our skill sets are very distinct, and it's a very, very natural, organic split. Tess is a fabulous saleswoman. She's great at pitching the vision and selling the vision and rallying the troops um, and getting sort of the media and um, investors and um, really excited and also recruiting. Um, And I'm a very operational person, very detailed um, and and great at just executing, um, taking ideas 
um, from from an idea stage through to, okay, now it's live and up and running. So it was a pretty natural split. How do you find the co-founder relationship works? And do you have any advice to share on really good, positive co-founder relationships? Well, first, I would say I I wouldn't I don't think I would ever start a business without a co-founder. And I see um, see women or other founders who do that. And that that. Um, that's really brave and because having a co-founder is just so incredibly important. It's the one person in the world um, that is going to want to talk about your business as much as you want to talk about it and all the ins and the outs and, and who can really understand what you're going through. Um, and I think it would be incredibly isolating if I didn't have that, um, if I didn't have, have Tessa to, to share that with. We were really um, straightforward or, or methodical about how we established our relationship. We read The Founder's Dilemma, and we went through a lot of the um, topics covered, and we had very purposeful conversations about all different aspects and elements of, of what makes up a co-founder relationship. And we agreed them purposefully up front so that we wouldn't get caught by surprise and maybe risk conflict later on. Um, and I, I love working with Tessa. Um, she's like my sister and my mentor and my husband and my everything and all at once. Just everything rolled together. Yes. But it sounds like you were very kind of practical to approaching the relationship and you kind of forewarned yourself with things that could go wrong, which seems or, or, you know, like a good pragmatic approach. Yeah. I think our friendship was also so important that we didn't want to risk damaging it. Mm. And so it was really important that we you addressed those things earlier yeah amazing well thank you so much for chatting to me can you tell me anything that's in the pipeline for you guys that you're working on any big picture stuff at the moment well just this week we've launched an underground tube campaign which is incredibly exciting um and um it's resulted in, in quite a lot of inbound attention from people and it feels um as our first above the line sort of marketing investment it feels like we're legitimate now which is just incredibly exciting um, and over the next 18 months, our goal is to really get the entirety of the UK to the, to the level of activity and penetration that we have here in London and, and just continuing to encourage people to, to share their spare food with someone nearby who would love it. Make those small changes. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming to talk to me. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review so more people can find the show. Until next time, keep dreaming and achieving.